How do you know that you know God? Uh, John has examined that. We've been addressing that. We've been looking at that. That is ultimately our big question in 1 John. How do you know that you know? How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you know God? And uh, he's been, as we've looked at it, he's addressed it in two different ways particularly. He has tried to encourage believers, remember who Christ is. Uh, he is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, the sins of the world. But he's also tried to, and he's addressed false teachers, because there's false teachers in the church, people who uh, miss who Christ really is, and people who are teaching false things. So he's doing both of these things at the same time. He's encouraging Christians how to know, how do I have assurance of my faith? And he's addressing false teachers, saying, you're not Christians. If you think you are, it's a false assurance. So he's doing both of these things. And it's really hard to do both of those things at the same time, especially when many Christians have very soft consciences. And their conscience might say, well, I'm wrestling with sin. Maybe I'm not a Christian. And those Christians' consciences are tender. And he doesn't want them to go down this track to say, well, because of this, I'm not a Christian. He's trying to encourage the true Christian how to have assurance of your faith. He's addressing the non-Christian. Don't have a false assurance and... Um, That's a tough thing to do. So today he pauses. He just stops. All that we've been talking, he pauses. And he's going to speak in such a way that will encourage and directly confront the believer as to where our assurance really comes from. Where does our hope really come from? I'm going to start reading in verse 12 of 1 John chapter 2. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Amen. Sends the reading of God's word uh, today. So even as I read that, do you notice those divisions, the, the different persons that he's speaking to, addressing there? Um, so he uses words like little children or dear children. When he uses words like that, he's just, he's just not talking to those who are chronologically young. All right? He's not saying, 
hey, everybody, if you're 10 and under, listen up. That's not what he's saying. He uses that kind of terminology to speak about all Christians. But particularly, if your faith is young, if you're new in the faith, he'll speak to you that way as little dear children. Uh, so not those who are just young, but those who are new Christians. When he talks about young men, he doesn't mean, hey, you strapping 20 and 30-year-olds out there. All right? He's talking about those, you're a Christian, but you're not a brand new Christian. You, you've come to the faith. And not just men, but if you're a Christian, but you're not a brand new Christian, but you're not a seasoned veteran. He's talking to you. And when he says fathers, he's not just saying, hey, you old folks, old men, papas out there. He's saying, you are spiritually mature people. Um, you who have been in the faith for quite a while. You've grown. Um, so it is possible that someone has gray hair like mine and not be a mature Christian. Okay? So don't just think age when you read these titles of folks that he's addressing. It's those who are new believers. Those who are... Uh, Christians, and they've been Christians for a little bit, but not a real long time, and those that have been believers and grown in maturity for, for years. And he speaks to them about assurance, the assurance of their faith. And so we're going to actually look at it. I'm not going to go right through the verses like we do sometimes. I'm going to take them in groups. So little children... We'll, we see that in verse 12, and we see it at the end of verse 13. So we're going to take all that section where he speaks to little children. Then we'll see all the section about young, uh, young men, and then we'll see all the sections about the fathers. So we're going to deal with them that way in groups. So let's dive in right to the first one, right? Verse 12, and then at the end of verse 13, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. So notice, Christians are, first off, they're forgiven people, and they're forgiven because of, for Jesus' sake, and because of their forgiveness, the forgiveness of their sins, they know the Father. That's the three things that he lays out there in those uh, two portions of Scripture. These believers, they're, they're new in the faith. They're young Christians that way. They are forgiven. They are forgiven for Christ's sake, and they know the Father. So let's just walk through those aspects of what he says. Forgiveness. So that's not new. The idea is not new, but it is God's work of forgiveness. I think that's an important part here, right? So he's not talking about something in us that responds to God's grace, right? So he has been doing that. He has been saying, how do I know I'm a Christian? Well, I love my brothers. But that's in me, right? So if I'm really a Christian, I should have a love for my brothers. Or this is in me. If I'm really a Christian, I want to obey God. That's something that's in me. And that's very subjective. And he has been setting those out as 
uh, evidence for the Christian to think about. But now he does something different. He's saying, okay, here's objective reality. This is not something in you. This is something that's done for you. God does this thing. God, Christians are forgiven by God. Forgiveness is God's work. He's the one that does that. So, if uh, we, we only look inwardly, like, all right, do I love my brothers? If that's the only place my assurance comes from, I'm going to struggle, because you know why? I don't always love people the best as I can. Or, what about obedience? If my only ground for a assurance that I'm a Christian is that I'm obedient to God, I'm going to struggle with my assurance. You know why? Because my obedience wavers. Sometimes it's better than other times. The way we care for one another, it fluctuates. Our love for each other, it fluctuates. Even husbands and wives, doesn't that fluctuate from day to day? The way, the, the uh, love that you share with, yeah, you love them, but sometimes you want to choke them, right? You've been there. That expression of love changes day by day, sometimes moment by moment. And if my assurance of my standing with God is based on how I love fellow Christians, that's going to fluctuate from time to time. Sometimes, yeah, I know I'm a Christian. Man, look, I just, I've got so much love in my heart for everybody. And sometimes it's going to be like, I don't know if I am a Christian or not, because right now i got no love for you. Right? So it would fluctuate. So what does John do? John points us away from ourselves to something, uh, away from that subjective evidence to something objective that is outside of yourself, and he points you to who God is and what God does. So Christians, they're forgiven people, but it is God who does the forgiving, isn't it? The work of forgiveness is God's work. And that's the ultimate ground for your assurance. If you're a Christian, here's the ultimate ground. God has forgiven your sins. That's sweet news for all of us. And that's something that is outside of me. It's outside of ourselves. So forgiveness is something, not something, that's in you. So God doesn't forgive us uh, because of something in us. He does forgiveness. He does it in justification, which we will no doubt talk about some more next week. He does it when he pardons all of our sins and he accepts us as righteous in his sight, not for anything in us, but all based on what Christ has done, his perfect obedience about who he is the righteous Savior, the Lord Jesus. So John says, your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And so they're not just forgiven. Why are they forgiven? It's not something we do. It's not, nobody in this room is forgiven because you deserve it. Do you know that? hope you do. 
You're not forgiven because you're really different than those other people who have not yet received mercy and forgiveness. That's not why. We're forgiven because of Christ. We're forgiven because God's mercy is shown to us in Jesus Christ. So the basis of our forgiveness is outside of ourselves. It's alien to us. That's the old language. It's not from in here. It's from out there. Or, uh, it's what Christ has done, who Christ is. And that's the way that God has done that. You don't deserve to be forgiven. This forgiveness comes to us in Christ. And that fact, the fact that our forgiveness it comes from, is located in him, that we're forgiven because of who Christ is and what Christ has done, that's the basis of our salvation. And friends, there are so many songs where we sing about that. You know, Amazing Grace? Everybody probably knows that one by heart. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved what? A wretch like me. That, so you don't deserve it. You're a wretch. But you're saved because of what Christ has done for you. Or, or 209. You probably don't have this one memorized. So flip over to 209. You probably know the song, Rock of Ages, right? The second verse of Rock of Ages Hymn 209 says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So it's nothing in me or in you that is the cause for God to forgive you. God's forgiveness is handed freely and openly in the just sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sinners. He's our Savior. My forgiveness is because of Christ. You, we, could go, we could look at a bunch of one other. Uh, flip over with me to him 406. We'll sing this one here in a few moments. 406, Christ the sure and steady anchor. He, this hymn writer does the same thing, Matt Boswell, Matt Papa, they do the same thing that John does in 1 John. Here's the ground for your assurance, Christ. It says, verse 3, Christ the sure and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief, hopeless Somehow, oh, my soul now, lift my eyes, where? To Calvary. This, my ballast of assurance. See his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ. I'm forgiven because of Christ. God forgives me because of the person and the work of Jesus 
Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, he lived a perfect life of obedience. He died in my place, in my stead. He took my wrath, my shame, my punishment, my sin upon his shoulders. He gives to me by faith his righteousness and covers me with that. It's imputed to me by faith. And that's the ground of our assurance. And what's the result? Look at verse 13. You know God. Because of your forgiveness of your sins, the first thing that proceeds, what, what benefit proceeds from the fact that you know God, uh, from your for, forgiven sins, you know God. Christians are forgiven, they're forgiven for Christ's sake, and they know God. They know him. That's important because people try to deal with their own sins their own ways. Sometimes people try to deny their sin. Sometimes people try to uh, uh, diminish how significant, significant our sin is. But God says, no, 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 no. It is the forgiveness of sin. That's the beginning of the Christian life. So God saves those who are sinners they come to know they're sinners, right? They have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. Christ is their only hope. And as they look to Christ, they know God. They know him. So how often have you, you know EE, the evangelism explosion, how many times have you asked that question? I know Jerry has said it multitudes of times. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? How many times have you asked that question and you've heard something like, I try to be a good person. Or, I've been baptized. Or, well, I, pray, I prayed a prayer. So let's just parse those things. Let's parse that. What does that mean? You're basically, if you're saying, well, I try to be a good person. You're saying God saves people who are basically good. That's what you're saying. You're saying God lets people go to glory if they just try hard. That's what, that's what you're saying. If you say, yeah, I'll just try to be better than I currently am. Okay. If they try to live right, that's all it takes. Or... As long as you've prayed some, it doesn't matter if you meant, just as long as you've prayed. Or as long as you've been baptized, then you got it. You got the ticket. Friends, John says that's not the gospel. It is not the gospel. God saves wicked wretches. He doesn't save people who are basically good. He doesn't save people who are good and trying to be better. Jesus said, I have not come to save the righteous, but sinners. So those who think as long as they try enough or try hard enough, they have not seen 
how sinful they really are, and they have not felt the gravity, the heaviness, the weight of their own plight and their own sin. John is saying believers glory in the reality that God has saved them, not because they deserve it, not because of anything they have done, even their faith, even repentance has never earned your salvation. That's what Rock of Ages says. Not the labors of my hands could meet thy law's demands. So I could never do enough good things to earn heaven. He says, could my zeal no respite no? So if I'm always happy, it's not going to do it. He says, could my tears forever flow? You could be the most repentant person in the world, and it won't save you. Christ has to save you. Christ, Christ alone saves. So I look away from myself and I look to Christ. I'm not forgiven because of something in me or something I do. I'm saved because of Christ. And so that's where John points us. And that's every Christian. This is the Christianity, first step. Your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. You know God. And then... It opens up, doesn't it? It opens up in those subjective ways. I have been forgiven. I know God. Therefore, the things we have saying, I love other people. It's a byproduct, right, of this. I love obeying God now. Not to be saved, but because of the forgiveness of my sins, because Christ has died, because I know the Father, now I want to please the Father. This objective reality undergirds all those other things he's been pointing us to. Second thing, Christians overcome the evil one. All right? Verses 13 and 14, those middle verses there, um, middle verse of 13, end of verse 14. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, young man, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So young men here, don't think uh, males who are 20 to 35. These are growing, but still young believers, all right? You're a Christian and you've been a Christian b- bit now, but not a real long time. It, but how's he describe them? You have overcome the evil one. So they have experienced a definitive break from the bondage of Satan. To use Paul's language, Ephesians chapter 2, they had been dead in sin, but now they're alive in Christ. Or Paul's language in Romans 6. Once they were in bondage to sin, now they are no longer under the domination of sin. And they've been forgiven, and not only has the penalty of their sin been removed, verse 12, now we even say the power of sin in their life is broken. The power of sin. You have overcome the evil one. Now, let's reality check. 
Most of us, and maybe even a lot of the time, we don't feel like we have overcome the evil one. Certainly not 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So maybe this sounds strange to your ears. Christian, you have overcome the evil one. Maybe that sounds really bizarre to you because you know your struggle with sin. But John says you're not just freed from the penalty of sin, but you're freed from the power of sin. And you say, "Uh, but I've got this besetting sin. Or, if you're like me, I've got this cluster of besetting sins. There's more than one, right? And I, it's an ongoing fight. There's this battle. And I've been fighting it for 28 years. Man, it's just going on and on. I'm still fighting them. I don't feel like I have dominion over them. And John is saying, even that besetting sin, that's a good reminder for you. That's a good thing for you to even wrestle with. Because before, you were a slave to all sins, and you didn't even realize it. The way you're wrestling right now with that one sin, boy, you used to just be swimming in all of them, and you didn't even see your need for a Savior. You didn't even understand it. Until he came, he, he lifts you out of the miry clay, your sorrow, your, your, the dark night of sin... But now, Christians are sanctified people. They experience delivery, not just from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. That's why he calls them strong. You are strong. That's why he says they have overcome the evil one. Once they were helpless, they were weak before sin. Now, by the grace of God, they're fighting against sin. So how have they been made strong? Well, John tells us the word of God abides in them. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And they've eaten the word of God. They've ingested it. They've digested the word of God. And the word of God dwells in them richly and by the Spirit That word is building them up and it's making them strong. It is Psalm 119.11. I've hidden your word in my heart. Why? So that I didn't sin against you. So John sees these Christians. And he can see the power of sin is broken in their lives. Even if they can't see it, he sees it. But here's our tendency, isn't it, as Christians. We think this way. I got all these areas where, man, sin doesn't look broken to me. I mean, it looks like I am still enslaved in all these different ways. And it's almost impossible for us to see the actual liberation that God has brought to us because we can't conceive of our world any other way, right? We can't can't picture it any other way. And just because we've been liberated from sin does not mean that we just coast to heaven on flowery beds of ease. It's not what takes place. The Christian life is this. It's warfare. Do you understand that? That's in the, this language should bring that to mind. It's warfare. It's ongoing battle. 
It's a fighting. You are saved, and you're saved to do what? Fight. The Christian life is about fighting the enemy. The world, the flesh, the devil, sin. When I become a Christian, I get signed up to fight. To fight against those things. It's fine. Many times I'm talking to someone and they're wrestling with maybe some besetting sin, some particular sin. They're not having great success at the current moment in this season of their life and, and fighting that sin. And they question, am I really a believer? Am I not a believer? I mean, if I was a believer, I should never be wrestling with sin like this. And it's so sweet when you can point to all the marks of God's grace in their life. And the very fact that they hate that sin, that's a mark that they're a Christian. That is a mark that you're a believer. Because before, you didn't hate your sin at all. And, and you're fighting against sin. That's not a sign of spiritual death. That's a sign of spiritual life. Dead people can't fight sin. It's only people who are alive that hate it and want to fight it. And so this life comes through Jesus Christ and John says, Christians, they've overcome the evil one. They have, you're inaugurated into this war against sin and against Satan. This is a battle. It's a fight. That's what's going on. Third thing. He speaks of these Christians. They know the eternal word, Christ. God incarnate who was from the beginning. Look there at verse 13 and 14. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. So young children, you've been forgiven through Jesus Christ. You've got knowledge of the Father. Young men, you're growing believers, right? He says, God has broken not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin in your life. You live to God. You die to sin in the Christian life. Now here, mature believer, this is, see how he describes you? And isn't this a beautiful description of a mature believer? They know Christ. Wouldn't that be a sweet thing to be, have said of us? Whew. I spend time with that person, they know Christ. It's, it's so, it oozes from them. He says, they know him who has been from the beginning. Here's the mark of grace. Here's the mark of a mature believer. People know the eternal word. People who know Christ Jesus. People who know the incarnate God, the second person of the Trinity. He who was from the beginning. Christians know him. Relationally. Christians know the eternal word, Jesus Christ. Christian, I just, that's a good aim for you. Man, when people who know you, when other Christians, when unbelievers, when they talk to you, let them know nothing else about you that they know the Lord. They have a relationship with Christ. And that's shown in a, a myriad of ways. 
And we can talk all afternoon about ways that that's displayed. You can. So this afternoon, encourage one another with that testimony. Hey, one of the things I love about you, this is so evident that you know Christ. You're, the way you patiently serve others. Just grab example. Encourage one another that way. When you see it, don't lie to people. <laughs> so don't lie. But in instances where it's so, let people know that. It's a sweet thing. And you know, John is always concerned, right, in his writing. So even think of first, uh, John chapter 1. How does it begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's over and over again, he's emphasizing this pre-existence of Jesus Christ, the, the co-eternality with God of Christ. And so he says it here in this phrase, you know him who has been from the beginning. Because these false teachers, they've been teaching something about Christ that's in contradiction with who Jesus is and who is revealed in his word to be. And John says, look, I can tell you are a real Christian. You are a true believer because you believe what the word says about Jesus. Him who was from the beginning. Jesus was before anything else was. He was Jesus before the foundation of the world. He, you know Christ. You have this relationship with Christ, the eternal Son, the only begotten of the Heavenly Father. That's who Jesus is, who the Bible tells us he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one who was from the beginning. So it's not enough to say, I know Jesus, and then make up the idea of who you think Jesus is. And we have to say, that's still a case today, right? People still do that sort of thing today. We talked about it some last Sunday night. People will call themselves Christians, and they'll say things like this. Well, I know the Bible says that about Christ, but I like to think of Jesus this way. What they have done, and if you do that, you've just made up a different Jesus. It's not the Bible's Jesus. John says, those who know Jesus know the Jesus of the Bible. Who does his word say that he is? Christ is revealed in the Bible. So Old Testament, New Testament, kids, your Sunday school curriculum, right? Always pointing us to Jesus. The Gospel Project does that in all his glory. Jesus is being set forth in the Bible. And that's the only Jesus that there is. That's the only Jesus who can save you. So don't think, I like to think of Jesus as X, like whatever. Fill in the blank. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Read his word. Fall in love with this Jesus. The mature Christians, their walk, they're those who know this Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures. And so again, John comes back around and doesn't, he points us to a reality outside of ourselves. God's gracious forgiveness of us through Christ. But now, 
right? He, he moves from that to this waging. We, we receive new life. There's now this waging of war against sin. There's this new now growing knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. It's outside of ourselves. I have to know him. I don't have to know myself better. I have to know him. That's where my assurance is going to come from. Do you know him? Christian, you say you're a Christian. Has your relationship with Christ grown at all? Say, well, I walked that, I can't, I remember the day I walked down and I prayed to receive Jesus. That's great. Do you know him? Is there an ongoing relationship with him? This is what, this is where assurance of faith comes from. It's this ongoing saving relationship that's, I know the only true God. I know Christ, the second person of the Trinity. I know, as Mike read, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who dwells in me. I pray you have that same assurance that John lays out here, that you know the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake. You know the Father, that there is this ongoing battle with sin in your life that you know and have this growing relationship with Christ, but also recognizing, just as my brother pray, prayed, I would be amiss if I thought there were people here who did not have that relationship with Christ. And so I call you now, turn from your sin and see that Jesus is your only hope of salvation. And the only Jesus that can do that is the Jesus that is revealed in the Scriptures. Turn, lay down your rebellion against him, and trust in him to forgive you of your sins. Because he saves wretched sinners. Turn to him. He is your only hope. Don't try to reform your own life. Don't, so this is something we have, don't ever think, well, I get angry. And God doesn't like how angry I get. If I stop being angry, God will save me. Don't think that way. You come to God with all your anger. You trust in Christ, and then he will change you. Say anger. I'm good with that. Let's work that out with all the other sins. You struggle with homosexuality. You do not fix your own homosexuality and then come to Christ. You come to Christ and you let him change you. He will change you. You're an alcoholic. I know AA says once you are, you always are. Not so. Paul can say, such were some of you. Don't say, once I stop drinking, I will come to Jesus. You repent of your sin right now. Come to him. He will save you. And then he will change you. That's the order. That's the order we have in the scriptures. And you can fill that in with every other sin you can imagine. You come to him first. And then let him change you. You don't clean yourself up. And then he finds you suitable for saving. Come to him. Do that today. Let's pray, shall we?
Lord God, we pray that you would grant us by your spirit that we would not be fooled. Uh, Lord, if we are trusting in some false assurance or something that is in us, and we lie to ourselves and say, well, you'll save us because I'm this way or that way, or I have done these things, or I got baptized, or I am just so pious. Why? No, 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 Lord. Let us know who we really are. And Lord, let our assurance flow. Let it be true assurance. Let it be blessed assurance that Jesus is ours. That he's ours. And let that be the source of all of our assurance. Who Christ is and what Christ has done. And Lord, I do pray for those outside of Christ. May they see their wretched estate. May they see the misery. May they feel the misery of their rebellion against you. And may they lay down those arms of rebellion and find reconciliation with the Holy God only through the Prince of Peace. May they do it even this moment as we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.